Hi everybody, it's me again. After the release of my debut episode for All is Fair in Lovecraft and War, I've come to the realization that not only have very few people heard of Lovecraft, but out of that group, only a small percentage of them have actively read Lovecraft stuff. Which, I can totally get. I can count the number of people I know who will read books from before the 1980s for fun, and it's actually just four people. So, I've decided to make my job a little harder, and your job a little easier. Beginning today, I will be releasing parallel episodes to my Lovecraft and War analysis known as For Your Information, which will act as summaries for the stories I'll be covering. I, however, will not be giving any more work to my lovely narrator Connor, so you're stuck with me for this episode. Yay! Now, today's summary will be about The Shadow Over Innsmouth. The Shadow Over Innsmouth is a very popular Lovecraftian story, actually. Its broken and dilapidated Massachusetts fishing village setting is pretty much the only setting video games will try to use when making a... Lovecraftian game. I guess making ugly fish people is also pretty easy with the artistic rendering ability for some of these games. Bad video games aside, our story begins with our narrator, who remains unnamed in this book, informing us about the events that happened after the story. Government raids and arrests, burning down the city, folks being sent to military prisons. It's a pretty fascinating way to start because it drags the reader in by using curiosity alone. He even makes a point to show that liberal organizations tried to bring justice to these people in prison, but they were really too disgusted by what they saw and gave up. Very true to Lovecraft's idea that people are all inherently flawed cowards. I mean, I would make a speak for yourself comment here, but I'm a coward as well, so uh, I will pass the baton to you. Go for it, listener. We then go back in time to the beginning of this story. Our narrator is on an architectural tour of Massachusetts. For some reason. As a writer, I have the ability to tell you that Lovecraft definitely read a lot about architecture and used this book as an opportunity to info dump everything he learned. We all do that. Regardless, our boy was trying to find the cheapest way to get from one town to another. When he complained about the price of the train ticket to the guy running the booth, the dude suggested the bus line that ran through Innsmouth. This is, obviously, the best response to a choosing beggar. Just send them right on their way to a creepy town full of people that may or may not kill him. Good job, train guy. This is where we learn that our narrator is a bit of an idiot, because the train guy gives him a pretty long monologue about the weird things that happen at Innsmouth and the equally weird people there. Deals with the devil, epidemics, weird bald people, you know, the typical Tuesday evening at any abandoned parking lot. But anyway, the train guy mentions an important character. Captain Marsh. He ran a big trading company with three whole ships. He's the head honcho of Innsmouth. Well, not anymore. He's dead. But his descendants are doing well. They made a lot of money off the gold-like jewelry he traded for at a foreign port, and it seems like the fish really like hanging out in this creepy town for some godforsaken reason, because the fishing's good too. They even have a small gold refinery, but that's kind of drying up. So our narrator hears all of this and goes, yeah, okay, I'll take the bus because it's cheaper, but I'll only be there for a day and then I'll take the evening bus to my next stop. As if nothing will go wrong with that plan. But before checking into the YMCA, yeah, that existed in the 30s, for the evening, he decides to drop by the local museum to check out that funky gold-like jewelry. With an entire paragraph, he basically tells us that the jewelry's got some frogfish people on it and it's got an evil energy like your great aunt's old dolls. Not sure how a tiara can look evil, but I'm sure someone will figure it out. Oh, also, there's this cult that's mentioned, but I really think it's for the Cthulhu reference points, to be honest, because the cult just sort of exists in the town, and it doesn't really do much other than scare the shit out of the narrator briefly. Anyway, he goes and gets some rest and is up and ready the next day for that faded bus ride. This bus ride is a way to set the stage, so that's pretty chill, but all you need to know is that the town's old, and it's wet, and it's abandoned, and it's also gross, so... Our boy gets there and is briefly scared shitless by that cult member, like I mentioned earlier, and the dude looked more fish than human compared to the other citizens, I believe. This is, of course, a traumatic event, and it stays with our narrator the entire time. Poor thing. 
It doesn't deter our narrator, though. He goes forward and finds some information at the chain grocery store because he assumes that the non-natives will likely be there. He's in luck! He finds a teenager who's in charge of the Safeway. I'm assuming that's what it is, because you'll find a Safeway literally anywhere. And the kid lets our narrator in on everything he knows, which isn't too much, but he does make a map for the narrator, which is also pretty chill. Supposedly Lovecraft had a good idea of what the town looked like, but I hate picturing town maps that aren't given to me in pictorial form, so I don't have the faintest clue as to what it looks like. Look it up, I guess. As for the townspeople, all the team could offer was the fact that the folks spent most of their time in their own homes and only celebrated events on October 31st and April 30th for some reason. Maybe they're the type of people to lose their marbles over Halloween. I don't know. He also mentions another key character, old Zadok. We talk about him a lot in my analysis, so you know he's pretty crazy and won't tell you anything until you give him alcohol. Now, we know that everything he says is the truth, but the narrator and the teen are like, ah ha ha yeah, he's an old man and tells crazy stories like, okay boomer, but... After briefly discussing the Marsh family and their recent choice to begin to do business inside their house instead of out and about, the narrator thanks the teen and heads out to do some information gathering from the other non-natives and the architecture admiring, because he's on an architecture tour, or whatever godforsaken reason. Yep. So basically, he checks around the town and tells us how gross and creepy the town is and how ugly the people are before coming to the old fire station to see old Zadok hanging out with the boys! Our narrator decides to be creepy and buys some whiskey and follows the old man until he's alone with the goal to get him intoxicated. <laughs> Our protagonist, everybody! They have a heart-to-heart -to -heart together, and Zadok has a way too long and undecipherable phonetic monologue about Innsmouth and good old Captain Marsh. Essentially, during his time trading on the seas, Captain Marsh came across an island in the, uh, South Sea, I guess? Yeah. The town was struggling and the fishing was bad, the trade was dying off, and the mills were failing. But Captain Marsh came across a peculiar group of islanders. Apparently, their island was home to strange ruins. Ruins with horrible frog fish monsters carved on them. Sound familiar? They say the island used to be underwater, but was raised a while before the natives came to live there. The natives there wore some strange jewelry. It was gold mixed with a strange illustrious metal to make a shiny alloy of sorts. And they always had good fishing. Sound familiar? Again? If it doesn't, uh, you may want to go back a few minutes, because you might have zoned out, but that's chill. I do that all the time with podcasts, so, like, if you're using my lovely voice as a background noise, then let's keep going! Anyway, Zadok mentions that Captain Marsh was good at reading people, and that our narrator has the captain's eyes. This is what, in the writing business, we call foreshadowing. Zadok also discusses what the native leader told the captain. Apparently, these creatures live in cities underwater, and the ruins were once part of the city before the island got shoved up above sea level. But the reason the natives knew the frog fish people actually existed was because when the island popped up, some fish people were on there. Crazy coincidence if you ask me, but then again, I always managed to run into my middle school classmates at farmer's markets, so maybe it's just a universal rule. Yeah, so apparently these fish folk like human sacrifices, I bet they found that out the hard way. The natives sort of settled for giving fish people young kids on Halloween and May Eve, which I'm guessing is April 30th, because otherwise that date mentioned earlier doesn't make sense. And they also carved little, uh, knickknacks, I think, and gave them to the fish people who gave them fish in return. Legit? Right, so onto the elephant in the room. Well, Lovecraft's cosmic elephant, I guess. The fish people were also interested in mating with the natives, and true to Lovecraft's beliefs on humans, the natives were a little grossed out about it until they heard that the species benefits that come with fish people. I say true to Lovecraft's beliefs because we all saw the shape of water and we all know there would be people out there who would be hyped to do the do with a fish man. So, 
Let's hope my parents aren't listening to this. Anyway, it turns out that the fish people are, are like lobsters. They can hypothetically live forever unless forcibly killed, and this passes on to their offspring. Now, if you're a human-fish hybrid, you start out human and then progressively get more fishy as you grow up, and your immortality doesn't start until you go full fish and live underwater. So you could live a double life as a human and then a fish person. I've been around for 18 years and it sucks, so I don't know why people want immortality, but Lovecraft also enjoyed emphasizing the cowardice of humanity in the face of death. So, yeah, I can get that. Yep, so as you can assume, the natives started, uh, mixing, for lack of a better word, with the fish people, and the captain got to see a few of the children from these couples. And he wasn't all that grossed out, so that's pretty cool. And as a token of appreciation, uh, tourism, I don't know, the native leader gave the captain one of the lead knickknacks that they made. Very exciting. Captain Marsh thinks all this is pretty lit, so he decides to make a trade for some of the jewelry, and the crew's like, hey, Captain, this is kind of sus, and he's like, but what if you get part of the gold? And they're like, actually, this sounds like a great idea, Captain, and they take it back and continue trading with that island for a while. Though when Zadok turns seven, they find out that the islanders were all killed off by other islanders. I'm gonna gloss over the little stone charms that were scattered around on the island that look kind of like swastikas, because this was the 30s, and I'm assuming we will not be referencing Nazis pre-World War II. This, uh, elimination of a trade partner impacted Marsh's business as well as the whole town's well-being. So, Marsh did what he thought was best. He prayed and tossed the little knick-knack into the water in hopes that it will bring the fish over so that they'll have something to sell. And the church wisely decided to get the hell out of there and that cult moved in in place. Apparently, the captain would go to Devil's Reef, an island just outside of the town, to chant with the boys. Uh, also, the fish people hang out in Massachusetts. And also, people have been going missing. So, uh, connect the dots. Apparently, it looked like Marsh originally wanted nothing to do with the mating aspect of the whole fish people thing, and was only in it for the gold. And when the townspeople began asking questions about, like, you know, the weird chanting, and the humanist silhouettes in the water, and the missing people, Marsh stopped all that stuff, which seemed fine and dandy until the Fire Nation attacked. Just kidding, it was the fish people. They basically raided the town and killed anyone they could get their hands on. Not great, but it's a, it's a Lovecraftian monster, and their whole shtick is to not like humans, so that ended up scaring everyone into allowing the fish people to come over and hang out, and even have some kids. Zadok essentially recalls that they had to swear an oath to the cult, and then dissolves into a name rambling that mentions everyone's favorite old god, Cthulhu. After his brief lapse of insanity, he talks about how he knows too much, and mentions the whole epidemic back in the 1840s. We then dive into Captain Marsh's family history. The important bit is that his second wife was never seen by the public and they had three children together. One, the eldest daughter spent some time in France before getting married off to someone in the neighboring town. That will be important. Pay attention. This is basically a <laughs> catfish marriage, get it? Because she was a fish and they lied about what she looked like. <laughs> anyway. Zadok is getting increasingly paranoid as he talks, and his ranting takes a kind of sad edge to it as it really seems like no one will take him seriously about the horrors he and this town has gone through. Eventually, he looks out into the water and sees something. He then freezes and tells the narrator to get out, before running away inland and is never heard from in the book again. It's heavily implied by the narrator in post-events that Zadok was never found by the government, so it's safe to assume that he was killed. The narrator decides to wisely get out after that. <laughs> Just kidding! He stays overnight, but in his defense, he really did try to catch that evening bus, but what happens next is like the textbook example of, am I good at noticing things or is this guy just stupid? Because we get to the bus stop and the driver comes in, talks briefly with a random quote-unquote suspicious dude from the street, and then regrettably informs the narrator that the bus is broken and won't be ready until morning. I'm not actually sure if the narrator was aware that this plot was as paper-thin as a high school toilet paper, but he's easily frightened and a paranoid fellow, so let's assume he figured it out. 
So the narrator's got to spend the night at the local inn, and he's not very happy about it, and neither is the town, apparently. I guess the dude's vibes were so bad that the entire town wanted him out. Or he knew too much. That's probably the reason, actually. He gets led to his room and notices that it's one of those hotel rooms that connects to the other ones beside it. He also notices that the bolt on the door is just gone, like recently removed gone. So using his handy three-in-one screwdriver he's always got on hand, he swapped a bolt from the clothes press to replace the missing one on the door. He also checks the two adjacent doors that lead to the room next to him, and luckily they've got their bolts. So after that, he hunkers down for the night and gets about as much sleep as I would get when I know I have a 6 a.m. flight I gotta leave at 3 a.m. for. Except while I get to lay in my bed undisturbed, our narrator gets an unwelcome visit. A group of Innsmouth folks try to get into his room, and thanks to the bolts and the fact that he decided fuck it and barricaded one of the adjacent doors with his mattress, they're delayed. He takes this opportunity to run into the other room, and uses this room to jump out of the hotel and into another house before disappearing into the streets. We follow him as he plots his escape, deciding to escape through the abandoned railroads because it's the most unlikely way a prisoner would escape, which is pretty smart, actually. I don't have anything snarky to offer here, really. But he did get a full look at the fish people and decided they were so ugly he just had to pass out. So yeah, he wakes up around noon the next day to find all the fish people gone, so he makes a break for it for the nearest town and catches a train to his final intended destination. Thoroughly traumatized by his time in Innsmouth, he stops his architectural tour short and decides to do a little genealogical research instead. Things get a little confusing here, so I'd make sure you're paying attention. In the town that our narrator is staying at currently, he finds the curator of a local historical society. His name's Peabody. Peabody shows interest in our narrator when he mentions that his, the narrator's, grandmother was Eliza Orne, who's a local here. Peabody goes on to explain that Eliza's parents are a local mystery because the wife was the woman of unknown origins. Huh. The woman was presumed to be from an orphaned Marsh family of sorts who was raised in France. Yeah. So she also died right after giving birth to her only daughter, the narrator's grandmother. Now, if you haven't figured it out, totally cool. I also forgot about that bit when I was reading it too. But this mysterious orphan Marsh who died early is actually the descendant of the Captain Marsh. And given Marsh's whole uh, second wife thing, it's pretty safe to assume that she's a fish person. And if I understand genetics properly, so is our narrator. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, pretty lit, right? You get to be a fish person and achieve my five-year-old self-wish of being able to breathe underwater, plus you get to live forever. Well, clearly the narrator doesn't agree with my five-year-old self because he tries to forget all of that and go home. He then realizes that his uncle, the one who traveled to the very city he was just in, and the one who the historical society took interest in, and who committed suicide, always gave him these bad vibes. And the uncle's son, his nephew, was almost the exact replica of his grandmother, and they all had the marsh eyes, something Peabody told our narrator he had too. So, yeah... But the deniability of a narrator is quite deep because he doesn't believe his fate quite yet. He gets one of his living relatives to pull out the old jewelry that his grandmother had. Apparently, she enjoyed looking at them but never wore them publicly. When he sees the jewelry, his fears are confirmed. It's the same style of jewelry that's found in the museum and on those fish people at Innsmouth. Yikes. So, your boy is so astounded by that connection, he passes out once again. Poor dude. So the rest of our narrator's story is focused on how he processes this news. He has these dreams where he would wander around deep undersea cities and spot these mysterious fish people, or deep ones as we learn they call themselves. Guess they're woke or something? I don't know. The narrator wakes up in fear every single time, but he finds himself beginning to be less frightened by the deep ones. He begins to relate to them, actually. This begins my favorite part of the story, aka the descent into madness. 
Honestly, it made reading the whole novel worth it because I rarely get to see Descents into Madness. There's not really too much to describe in terms of plot details, but our narrator slowly begins to show us that he's losing his mind. He begins to show physical traits of the Innsmouth people and he goes from being disturbed at the idea to being fascinated by them. In one of his dreams, he actually gets to meet his grandmother, and also his great-great-grandmother, who explains that after the incident at Innsmouth and that South Ocean Island, the Deep Ones are resting, lying in wait for the perfect time to strike in honor of Cthulhu. Cool. So, <laughs> now our narrator did consider offing himself. He even brought a gun to do so, but he backed out and pulled a full 180 and decided he's going to pull a Dr. Strangelove and embrace the bomb, the bomb being his new identity as a deep one. He ends his story with the news that he's going to break out his nephew from that insane asylum they put him in, and the two are going to go join Granny in the rest of the underwater world. Here we can see his opinion change because the last line reads, We shall swim out to that brooding reef in the sea and dive down through the black abysses to the cyclopean and many columned Yahanithli. Oh boy. And in that layer of the deep ones we shall dwell amidst the wandering glory forever. And aside from my butchering of that word, I want to point out to you the direction of the words wonder and glory. Quite the dramatic shift from calling the deep ones horrid and evil and stuff. Which I can appreciate because it's like a character arc? Sort of? I'll take it. So, yep. That's the story of Love's Crafts, The Shadow Over Innsmouth. And I know I gave the story a lot of shit while I went over this, but I also really did enjoy reading it. It's fun to see the roots of some of the horrors that I've heard of today. And I hope you enjoyed my summarization. It got a bit long, but I really couldn't help myself. I wanted to describe all that I could. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the fish people, because we're going to move on to the legendary Cthulhu, who is also a fish person. I think. I mean, technically cephalopods aren't fish, but they do live underwater, so it's tangentially related, you know? Regardless, please tune in to my next two episodes analyzing and describing the call of Cthulhu. Have a good one.